and welcome to the G2 podcast. There are times in everyone's life where you have a moment where you get to decide, what kind of person am I going to be? Now, it might be when you see an elderly lady walking across the road and you think, I've got to get somewhere, but I don't I can see maybe I should help them. Or you find money on the floor or I don't know. There are many more extreme versions. But mine it was that in my third week of university, I had the opportunity to join the comedy group. Now, I was 19. And so I thought, maybe I'm funny. Like, you know, when you're 19 and you have like delusions of grandeur or you think you just... Life is an open possibility. I could be genuinely really funny. And I don't know. Other people don't know yet. So I should go find out. So I joined, I, me and two of my friends decided to audition. Um, we didn't have any material or a sketch or anything that would really conceivably be seen as funny. So we turned up with a drama game. And drama games are just like things that people do in drama, you know, like A-level drama, whatever, to get you like warmed up. So we turned up with that and thought, we'll make that funny, right? So, the, okay, here was the drama game. So there was someone on stage, one of the three of us. I don't know why any of us thought we were funny. Um, but anyway, one, one person was doing this, right? So like stirring. Another person came. This is our sketch. Another person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you for the laughter. That's what we should have said to the audience. Um, so another person came on, and then the person would go in it went, uh, like served them something I think they went uh, soup and then the next next person went ah soup and then fell down dead right and then and then I this was my big role this was my moment to figure out whether I was funny or not I ran on and went he's dead so we auditioned and surprisingly we got in and I'm not just saying just into the comedy group we got into the, first, the opening night that year of the comedy group's like big show. It was sold out audience, huge auditorium, honestly every seat filled. And I don't know if it's maybe because they thought it would be funny to watch us bomb that they, <laughs> they let us in, but they did say yes. Everyone else doing this comedy night had a sketch or a talent. Some people played the piano and sang and it was funny. Other people had an idea what they were going to do when they stepped out on stage, but not us. So I remember it was, the, it was the night. It was like 11 o'clock at night, and I was stood in the wings of this stage, and I could see, honestly, hundreds of people. And all these other undergrads, I mean, why anyone wants to go to student comedy, especially like first-year student comedy? Anyway, they were there. So we stood on the wings, and I remember thinking, God, this is, this is like jumping out of a plane without a parachute. And if, if you save me now... I will know you are real. <laughs> I will, I, because there is no way I can save myself for what I've chosen to do. Anyway, so we went out and um, basically what we did was we got, we planned it just before, we got people in the audience to shout out different styles that we should do that drama game in. So we did one in Russian style. We did one in Wild West. We did one in Futuristic. Anyway, surprisingly, astoundingly, thanks, Hannah, astoundingly, it went well. And I genuinely, the student newspaper said we were particularly funny. I don't know what they were talking about, but they did. Uh, the head of the comedy group came up to us and invited us back. He invited us to be part. He is a guy called Phil Wang. Anyone heard of Phil Wang? 
Yeah, Phil Wang said to me at three o'clock in the morning in this theater, he went, we want you guys back. I was like, I was like, <laughs> you have no discernment. <laughs> but anyway, Phil Wang wanted us back. But here, <laughs> thanks everyone. <laughs> but here's the snag. There were two snags. Snag number one, we had no other material. <laughs> because frankly, we didn't have much material in the first place. Snag number two, it was the same night as church. Ooh. Who was I going to be? Was I going to go to a glittering career of comedy fame with my mate Phil Wang and my two other friends who probably wouldn't make it, but I knew that I would? <laughs> or, or was I going to go to the student night of church, which was called Risky Living? Risky Living. It was the least risky thing I'd ever been to. But anyway, it was, called, it was fairly conservative, I'll be honest. Um, so anyway, I had to make a choice. Who was I going to be? Was I going to be this comedian, me and Phil, writing our books together? Or, or was I going to be a part of church? And I decided, mainly because the comedy nights ended at three in the morning, I liked sleeping, that I was going to go and consistently go to church instead. We also genuinely didn't have any material. We did actually try to write some more. It was worse. And they did not let us through. But anyway, mainly, I was like, Tuesday nights, I'm going to go to church. This is who I'm going to be. For many people, the choice over who they're going to be is a lot harder than mine. For many people, they're in circumstances where being a Christian or deciding to worship or deciding to choose their faith over other things is significantly more challenging than my dilemma. By the way, just to flip forward, like Phil Wang has a very successful book. My book you can buy on Amazon. Like, you know, first month it sold like 38 copies. So, <sighs> didn't... Didn't go so far away, did I? Anyway, um, my book is not funny. Um, but nevertheless, a lot of people have, have circumstances where choosing to be as a Christian is a lot harder. And many of you may have found that personally in your lives, both in this country or other countries or in different places where being a Christian is hard. Some people are born into difficult circumstances, whether through poverty or the particular state they're in or through their own personal illness, they, from the moment they are born, life is hard, really hard. Some people choose it. Some people choose difficult circumstances. Some people go to places where life is tough because they're driven by compassion. And some people have hard lives thrust upon them. Things change. Societies collapse. Economic crises happen, wars happen, invasions happen, and life gets significantly more difficult. And the three people that we're going to look at today in the third chapter of Daniel, difficulty is thrust upon them. They start life uh, in, their, in safety in Judah, but they're invaded by the kingdom of Babylon and taken away into not captivity, but into a kingdom which isn't theirs, where they are given different names. They're having to do different jobs. They're not able to live the life of worship that they had when they were younger. These three men are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Abednego, as actually I probably should say, because that's how it's spelt. Um, turn with me. Can you find Daniel chapter 3? You have Bibles on your tables, because I did have slides, but um, as you can see, the the passage is long, like really long. So 30, um, 30 verses doesn't fit on a slide. So sorry about that. You've got a Bible. But, you know, that's a good thing. 
King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, sit, don't stand up, um, advisors, governors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all of the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the king of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of God of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. This is the kingdom that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego have been taken into. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped that image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing fire. They say that several times, don't they? Um, But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. In chapters one and two, you find these three guys um, being trained up, being educated in Babylon, and because of a a whole story with Daniel, who and there's a there's an interpretation of the dream. King Nebuchadnezzar decides he likes these guys. They are given official roles. Now, the first few verses of Daniel, there's a picture of um, uh, treasure from the temple, from God's temple, being taken away, being stolen, and taken away to Babylon, and that's what these three guys really are symbolically. These are like the treasure of the kingdom that have been stolen and taken away. But they've been recognized for being gold. They've been recognized for being really precious. And they've been, ta- and they've been put in positions of authority. But it doesn't mean that life is now suddenly easy. They're still under the reign of this king who, as you can tell, has an ego. So, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were bought, brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods of worship, the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? What a reasonable guy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. Remember, before that, he put them in positions of authority because it had gone well with Daniel. Where have we gone? 
Uh, he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest men in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who do not say, um, who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego be cut into pieces. Again, super reasonable dude. And their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I always think that last line, I always think, or oh, if this was just a story told in like that next job interview. So like, oh, they asked like, how did you get your last job? Anyway, um, <laughs> sometimes things strike you about the uh, verses of the Bible, don't they? And there's one word that strikes me in this. I don't know if it struck you. The word is trousers. So in, in the description, when they get thrown into the fire, it says they're wearing robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes. I don't know if you noticed, but like in other Bible verses, they don't say they're wearing trousers. And I've always assumed like if they might have been. They, they probably were wearing trousers, but here it explicitly states it, which makes me think maybe they're not. Anyway, that is not what I want to draw your attention to. I want to ask you a question. What do you notice that these three men go into the fire with, but do not come out with? What do the men go into the fire with, but don't come out with? What does anyone notice? Anyone notice? feel like you're whispering. Someone just shouted it. Ropes. They go into the fire with ropes, but they do not come out with ropes. The only thing that they lose in the fire is their bondage. This is a story where a fire of, of genuine flames, not just a fire of circumstances, a fire that has been described as being seven times hotter than it should have been, how hot was it originally, and why was it so rushed that they, like, the, the soldiers actually got burned on the way in? He was that desperate to burn these guys alive. This fire is real. This is a real fire that they go into with all their clothes, turbans, trousers, and everything, and they are tied up. But they don't lose anything except their bondage. What they gain in the fire is greater freedom. Um, Martin Luther King referred to this passage in his letter from Birmingham Jail because it's a foundational document for the vision for civil disobedience, for standing up to oppression. 
there are boundaries that these three guys have to set where they are living. They're living in a difficult place. They're living in a place that has invaded their own country and taken them in. Yes, it's given them an education. Yes, it's given them jobs. But there has to be a boundary. Initially, you'll see in Daniel chapter 1, if you go look at it, is the boundary is food. They choose not to eat the food that they're being given because, they're, they're, because of purity, because of the laws God's given, as God has given them. In this situation, the boundary is worship. They choose not to worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has put up for them because that would mean not worshipping their God, the true God. And that they will give up their lives for because they know. They even say, yes, they say that um, if you have a look at it, they say, um, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They're not looking for justification. They're not looking to advocate for their way of life. They're just saying, we, this is where it stops for us, even if it means that we die. We do not need to defend ourselves in this matter. And they say, the God we serve is able to deliver us. They have faith in that, but they say, even if he does not, because sometimes maybe, maybe he doesn't, but even if he does not, we want to know, you to know, your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up, because they will not worship anyone but their God. It really costs them something. Throughout the Old Testament, the dynamic movement of people is towards worship. Why do you think Moses and the people are leaving Egypt? Why later in Ezra and Nehemiah are they leaving Babylon to get to build the temple again? All of it is a movement towards worshipping God, to have space to worship God. Worship is at the heart of who these guys are, and they cannot give it up, whatever the situation. And these guys are in charge as well. So I'm thinking, now, maybe, maybe this, this, is, like, this is probably terrible exegesis, like, you know, reading the Bible stuff. But um, if these guys were not the only Jews in this place, but they were the leaders, it may be that others, other Jews there weren't doing it either, but these three guys were being singled out because they represented the Jews in the nation. The dynamic focus of the Old Testament is towards worship, and these guys have put a boundary and say, we will not worship anything other than our God. But they come out of this situation unbound, unharmed, and not alone. They are unbound. We sometimes get, I think, scared of the, of the idea that as Christians that we may have to stand up for our faith or choose our faith or focus on worship over other things. But this story shows us However difficult that gets, there is greater freedom on the other side of it. They are the only thing they don't come out with is their chains. Now, for many of us, our experience of persecution or our experience of having to stand up for our faith is not anywhere near like this. But there are many people around the world who are our brothers and sisters in Christ for whom this is the reality. When, um, uh, can you show the picture of Andrew White? So, Thanks, um, Paul. Um, a, a winter, uh, when I was about 21, I went to a chapel where this guy was speaking. Um, and he just got off the plane from where he was living in Iraq. And he was describing the situation of his churches there. And the situation was pretty awful. I, in fact, it wasn't pretty awful. It was terrible. Um, so prepare your hearts for this, because this story takes a bit like a, a harder turn. Um, in Iraq, there were, in 2003, um, I 
think it was about 1.5 million Christians. Uh, by 2019, there were 225,000. So that's a significant change in numbers. That is not just people fleeing, it's also being pe people being killed by ISIS. And this guy, Andrew, who was uh, known as the vicar of Baghdad, was experiencing this with his church. And he'd got off the plane and come to speak to us in this chapel, and only a few weeks before had some children been um, attacked by ISIS. And they turned up at the um, uh, to these children, and, the, and ISIS asked these children, these Christian children who are part of the church communities that Andrew was in, ah, do you follow Jesus? And these children said, yes, we do. And they were all killed. He then, um, a few days later, got a call from um, one of the other people in his church. And they, and they said, um, ISIS came to my door and asked me, do I believe in Jesus? And this was an adult guy. And he said, Pastor, I, I denied Jesus. I said, no, I don't. Does he still love me? Will he still accept me? And Andrew said, Yes, Jesus still loves you. He still accepts you. Another few days later, um, a few other children came to um, uh, Andrew's door and knocked on it. And obviously the community were um, in such grief and mourning over the children that had been killed. And these, children came to, these other children came to tell Andrew that they'd had a dream. And their dream was of those that had died dancing in heaven with them. And they were saying, they were dancing in heaven with us, Pastor. They were dancing in heaven with us. I got a, um, do we flip to the um, next slide? Oh, so this is just a very quick map of around the um, world from Open Doors of where um, there are particular hotspots of Christian persecution. Um, now, there are places there that are particularly red, but that's because part of those countries, um, it's very hard to be a Christian. Um, it, it may not be the, all of it, um, because I think some of the, I think sometimes it's misleading for some of the eastern parts, but anyway. But this is kind of a general map, so you can see a picture of where it's particularly difficult. And it's often through that, um, that middle Sahelian belt around the Sahara where you get a lot of Islamic extremism, you get Boko Haram all the way uh, into the Middle East, but of course, most extreme places being like North Korea. Um, I, a place that's not on there, if we flip to the next one, is um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where uh, only in October I got an email um, from someone who was just asking for prayer, uh, and he was a church leader in, in the Congo, and it was through a network I was involved in through some of the global health stuff I do, um, and he was just asking for prayer because he was saying that his churches were on the run, because uh, M23, which is a rebel group, were attacking um, and M23 are not particularly out to, I don't, I don't know, I don't really understand the situation, but the, the reality was for those guys, um, M23 at that point were really dangerous for them, so they were moving. There's the ADF group that I think are particularly targeting, and, but if you want to know more about it, go explore. But this guy was just reaching out to us as a network on global health in the church, just asking for prayer. He wasn't asking for anything else. He was just saying, our churches are fleeing. Please just pray for us. Wasn't asking for resources. Wasn't asking for money. And I, and I was really moved by that because then I was like, we, you know, as um, this global health church, global health network I'm involved in, we did send prayer to this guy and he massively appreciated it. And I just thought, this seems so easy in a way. He just wanted people to know what they were going through. Um, 
for many of us, these kind of stories, if we flip back to the, the unharmed bit, Paul, thanks, um, these kind of stories are right on the extreme end, and they're, and they're things that we don't generally experience. Um, and, I, and, I, and I want to encourage you in this point that the idea is not to um, begin to hate anybody. I don't want to, I'm not encouraging that at all, but um, I just want to let you know that, that this kind of thing does happen, and these people are our family. Not only were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego unbound, they were also unharmed. Now, you may hear the stories of persecution and think, but that's clearly not a reality. The pers- I heard a friend of mine said to me the other day, you know, the persecuted church sometimes pity us because they go, you don't know what it's like to know Jesus with the intimacy, that um, know the, 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 the passion of the, in the situation that we are in, what it means for us to be following Jesus. Um, the unharmed picture, I think, yet is partly a picture of eternity. For these guys, it was a reality. They came out of the flames unharmed. For many people, that is an eternal promise because they do get harmed. Um, it reminds me of um, uh, in the story of Noah, you know, the, the ark, Noah and the ark. There's a, there's a bit where it says that God smelt Noah's worship and it was a good smell. Um, and I think there's a part here in this passage where it says that they, they did not even smell of the fire. Did not even smell of the fire because their worship was what God could smell. They come out of this unharmed, unsinged. And the final thing I want to, um, that they come out with is they come out and they haven't been alone. They are not alone. There is a fourth person in the midst of the fire with them. To me, that picture of that person, that is Jesus. That's who that person. Now, that's not who they, um, Nebuchadnezzar says it in there. He says it's a son of the gods, it seems like, maybe like an angelic figure. But to me, that's a picture of Jesus in the fire with these guys. These guys who don't know if they're going to come out unbound and unharmed. But they do know in the midst of it that they are not alone. They choose worship and they find in the fire that Jesus is with them and is worth it. Now, I don't know what um, you're going through at the moment. I don't know if there's a particularly uh, a, a hard time for you or where you feel in the fire, but can I encourage you that this story shows us that God's promise to us is to be unbound, unharmed, and not alone. He is to be unbound, unharmed, and not alone. The, um, the next picture that of, um, of worship that this uh, story really relates to me in is that picture in um, the second book of the second chapter of Acts. Um, now, in the second chapter of Acts, there is, a, there is the group of early Christians after Jesus has died and been resurrected. And they, are, they feel like, this is shortly after, they feel like they're on their own for the first time, in a sense. Um, and they what happens is there's a gathering of all different nations, the different people, and the Holy Spirit, this is the first time the Holy Spirit comes, and they get flames. The disciples get flames on their heads, and they speak in many different languages. It reminds me of this story because, again, those disciples, when they meet the Holy Spirit, find themselves unbound, unharmed, but most importantly, not alone. They find themselves given the gift 
of the Holy Spirit when they feel at their most terrified, their most hard-pressed. They feel like Jesus is not with them, and that's when God comes and moves with them and moves in them and moves over them. The fire of the Holy Spirit is around them. Now, I don't, my experience of worship is sometimes in worship, we, like in music worship, when we sing together, we can feel like maybe we don't know quite what we're doing. There's like the singing bit, and we kind of know, oh, I'll do the singing bit. And then we maybe get bored after a little while, and then like, oh, you caught back in and do the singing bit again. Um, but that isn't the kind of worship that's really being talked about here. The big thing that's been talked about here is the focus. It's a focus not to worship other things, to put your eyes and heart on God and say that his way is better than all the others and that you will stand for that. So stand with me now because we're going to worship. Psalm 73, it says, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So as we, as we think about the fire that... Um, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in, the fire that many of the Christians around the world are in, and the fire that some of us are in personally right now. It's time to worship anyway. Because in the fire, God can change our hearts. The fire can be a transformation. The fire can be a place where you find greater freedom. So I want to encourage you now. As you sing, it's not simply about reciting the words and getting the right melody or getting the right key. It's about putting your focus on Jesus above all putting him, see, and putting that boundary in like these three guys to say, and I will not worship anything else. This is where we cultivate the desire. So when we're singing together, we're not only cultivating a unity between us, we cultivate the desire to keep worshiping throughout the week in the way we work, in the way we speak to people, in the way we love one another and the way we serve. Because whatever the fire is, Worshipping him is still worth it. So the one last thing I'll leave you with is, as you are singing, at some point during it, you don't even need to make it obvious, I want you to just take one little step forward with your feet as one step forward focusing on him and saying, I will put my priority in you, Lord. Father God, we put before you our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the fire. And we ask that you would bring them out unbound, unharmed, because we know they're not alone. And Father God, we pray over our own hearts when we have the opportunity to focus on other things or when we are maybe forced to focus on other things, we pray, Lord, that right here and right now in worship, we would choose you first. We would seek you first. We would worship you first because you are the God who is worth it.